and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. In past episodes, we've talked a bit about the Earned Income Tax Credit, or EITC, as a policy that in some ways resembles universal basic income and could potentially be expanded to more closely model the policy and to, to live up to the aspects of it that so many of us find so interesting. One of our past guests, Chris Hughes, talked about his proposal for a guaranteed income, which is heavily inspired by the Earned Income Tax Credit. But we haven't delved too deeply into the policy to understand exactly how it works and what current proposals actually are moving um, and have been discussed as far as taking it more in the direction of basic income. So in this episode, we have some people who've done some deep analysis on this uh, in the context of the state of California. So joining us from the California Budget and Policy Center are Alyssa Anderson and Sarah Kimberlin. They are senior policy analysts. Uh, welcome to both of you. Thanks very much for having us. Yeah, thanks. To start with, can you just tell us generally about the work that the California Budget and Policy Center does? Sure. So we are a nonpartisan public policy research organization, and we basically seek to inform state budget and policy debates, um, primarily by analyzing the impact of policy proposals on uh, low and moderate income Californians. And so we cover a wide range of policy areas, everything from um, early care and education, K-12 education, higher education, health and human services, tax policy, housing, and many others. Now, as I said earlier, one policy we've talked about in the past in relation to basic income is the Earned Income Tax Credit. Since we haven't really gone into too much depth, do you mind just giving a brief description of, of what that policy is and what impact it has for low-income Americans? Sure. So the, the Earned Income Tax Credit is... Um, Originally, it's a refundable federal income tax credit um, that's designed to allow low and moderate income working families to keep more of their earnings. Um, and basically, it reduces the amount of federal income tax that families owe. Um, they'll get more money if they um, have more children, and it's based on how much they earn. Um, but importantly, because it's refundable, if the earned income tax credit is more than what a family owes in taxes, then they get the difference back as a refund. So they'll actually get a check back from the federal government um, that can help them um, increase their income and pay for, for their basic needs. Um, so what that means is even families that don't owe any federal income tax can get the full amount of EITC that they qualify for. Um, some important things to know about it. Um, for one thing, it actually has a very broad reach. Um, about one in five tax filers in the U.S. claims it. Um, and it can be a very sizable cash benefit. Um, so the federal EITC can boost families' earnings by over a third to almost a half, depending on the number of children, um, with a maximum credit of about $6,300. And there's also some other important things to know about it that, um, for one thing, it's been around for a very long time and it's very well researched. Um, so there's a lot of evidence behind it showing that, um, for one thing, it lifts more children out of poverty than any other federal policy. Um, that it helps increase families' incomes. Um, for another thing, it's been shown to increase employment among single mothers, um, and single mothers with kids are the largest group that benefits from it. Um, and finally, it appears to provide benefits that really help the next generation. So for one thing, it's uh, linked to improved health for babies, um, like higher birth weights. Um, it's a key predictor of future health and economic well-being. And it's also been linked to higher test scores for kids and higher high school graduation rates and college attendance rates. So it just appears to be linked to a lot of really important, um, positive long-term outcomes for, for kids. Those are really fascinating findings. So 
Alyssa, EITC is a federal program, but a number of states provide a supplement to the federal funds, including California, where the supplement is called Cal EITC. Can you tell us about the program and its specific impact? Yeah, so currently 29 states have state EITCs and the District of Columbia does as well. And generally the purpose of state EITCs is to enhance the benefits of the federal EITC. It basically provides an additional state credit on top of the federal credit. So California's credit, which is called the Cal EITC, was created in 2015, um, but it's structured really differently from the way other state EITCs are structured. So California basically decided to target the state EITC only to workers who are facing the greatest economic needs in order to be able to provide those workers with a much more generous credit. So California's EITC is actually far more robust than other state EITCs in terms of the size of the credit. Um, generally speaking, it provides a credit that's about 85% of the federal EITC, whereas most uh, other states provide credits that are 30% or less of the federal EITC. So our credit is actually the most generous refundable state credit in the nation. Um, and so families with kids in California can get a maximum Cal EITC of about $1,500 to $2,700, depending on how many kids they're supporting. And workers who aren't supporting children can get uh, just over $200. Um, but the credit is only available to families with extremely low incomes, uh, mostly families that are living well below the poverty line. And that's different from the way other state EITCs work. Um, in most other states, the state EITC is provided to all workers who qualify for the federal EITC. Um, but because the states are providing the credit to so many people, they provide a much smaller credit. So there's a, a trade-off there. Um, in terms of the impact, in each of the last two years, about 370,000 tax filers have benefited from the Cal EITC. Um, it actually means that many more people have benefited from the credit because a tax filer can be a married couple, it can be a parent with kids, um, it's basically all the people listed on a tax form. Um, and this year, the credit has reached over 900,000 tax filers uh, as of the end of March, so a few weeks before the end of this year's tax filing season. Um, and that's because the credit was significantly expanded last year. In terms of thinking about who who the people are who benefit from the Kelly ITC, um, I think one important thing to note is it really overwhelmingly benefits children. Um, so tax filers are eligible if um, if they have low incomes and they aren't supporting any children, but in fact, more than 90% of the Cal EITC dollars have gone to families with kids. So it's a really important tool, especially for helping working mothers. Um, and if you look at the tax filers with kids who are eligible for the Cal EITC, about 70% of them are women. So it's especially beneficial for, for children and, um, and working moms. And the Cal EITC is really targeted to reducing um, the depth of poverty. So in terms of how it affects poverty of, among families who are eligible, um, it really brings families closer to the poverty line because it's really focused on the, the largest credits go to the families with the, with the lowest earnings. It's not really designed to uh, lift families above the poverty line as much as reduce the depth of poverty because a lot of these are families where uh, a single parent is working part-time or part of the year. Um, but another thing that's important to note is it's important to think about the Cal EITC in combination with the federal tax credits that the same families are uh, eligible for. So if you look at um, the Cal EITC in combination with the federal EITC and um, the federal child tax credit, which is another tax credit for the same, you know, that low earning families are eligible for, 
those three credits combined can really significantly boost the earnings of families that are really earning a small amount. So for example, um, a family with three kids could see their earnings rise by as much as 92%. And again, these are, we're talking about families who have, you know, very low earnings, like well under $20,000 a year. So if, if you, and again, if you look at the Cal EITC plus the federal EITC combined, those lift over 800,000 Californians out of poverty each year. And many of those are children. So those credits combined also have lifted over a quarter million Californians out of deep poverty. Wow. That's great to hear that such a recent program that's providing direct cash has already had such an impact. Uh, One thing I'm curious about in past episodes, we've talked about some of the different barriers to access that exist for means-tested programs that, that we have today. And a really big one is simply awareness of the existence of the program. People don't even realize that there's more support available to them. And I I know, at least in the past, EITC has faced challenges around that. Can you tell us a bit about what has the uptake been for the program and what has actually been effective at getting more people to, to be able to take advantage of it? Sure. So it does appear that many people who are eligible for the Cali ATC have missed out on it. Um, And one of the ways we know that is we conducted a survey um, at the end of 2016, so after the first tax filing season when the credit became available, and we found that fewer than one in five people who were likely eligible for the credit based on their income and family size um, had even heard of it. And we also found that fewer than half of the people who appeared eligible for the Cali ATC had even filed their taxes that year. So we have some evidence that people are missing out on the credit. Um, unfortunately, we don't know the exact uptake or the participation rate. We know how many people are receiving the credit, but we don't have a really good handle on how many people are eligible for it. And really the key challenge is the credit targets people who have such low incomes that many of them aren't required to file state income taxes. And so if they're not filing, of course, we don't have tax data on them. So I think, you know, the bottom line here is that I think one of the keys to making the Kelly ATC a success is for the state to invest more in promoting the credit, because it could be that a lot of people just don't realize they can get cash back if they file their taxes, even if they're not required to file. And I also think that it's really important to connect low-income families to free tax services. Um, I was really surprised to learn when I started studying the EITC that the majority of people who claim the EITC pay to file their taxes, even though all of them are eligible for free tax prep services. So it basically means the majority of people claiming the EITC don't get the full benefit of their credit. And, you know, tax paid tax preparers aren't very forthcoming about how much they charge people, but some research has suggested that EITC filers can be charged several hundred dollars, you know, which for a low-income family is a lot of money, and they really need to get the full benefit of their credit. Um, and for the Cali ITC population, because they have extremely low incomes, well below the poverty line, I would imagine that if they think their only filing option is to pay somebody, that they really might not think it makes sense uh, to file their taxes and claim this credit if they're not going to get the full benefit anyway. So I think one of the best things that California could do to boost participation in the Cali ATC and also make sure that families are getting the full benefit of this credit is to expand and promote free tax prep services, Um, things like VITA, volunteer income tax assistance. Um, VITA sites provide free tax prep services by volunteers who are trained and certified by the IRS. Uh, But only 2% of EITC filers in California actually use VITA. 
Part of the problem is a lot of people don't know about it, but I think an even bigger problem is that Vita sites just really don't have the capacity to meet the great demand for free tax prep um, or the funds to compete with the advertising of, of paid tax preparers. And beyond that, if we could get more people to be taking advantage of Cal EITC, I imagine they would also be taking advantage of federal EITC, which would mean more money coming into California. No, absolutely. And that's a great point. So I think there's evidence that also suggests that the federal EITC is underutilized. And the research suggests that the people who aren't claiming the federal EITC, who are eligible for it, tend to have very low incomes, the very population that the Cal EITC targets. So there's a huge opportunity now that we have a state EITC to not only promote that credit, but to also make sure that people are claiming the federal credit as well, which draws federal dollars into the state you know, and can help provide a boost not only to low-income families, but to the businesses where they spend their money. Just a technical question. If someone's eligible for the federal or the Cal EITC and they file their taxes, do they get it automatically or do they have to take additional steps? They'll need to fill out the form um, that demonstrates that they're eligible for it, but it's a it's a stand like in standard tax preparation software with any paid preparer or volunteer VITA preparer, they would presumably go ahead and fill out that form and qualify mm-hmm. for it. There aren't any, uh, it's, it's like filling out any other tax form in your, yeah. when you're filing your income taxes. And my understanding is that VITA um, actually trains their volunteers specifically on EITC because the population they're targeting is eligible for that credit. So they get special training on that credit in particular. So the EITC naturally has a work requirement. What can you tell us, you mentioned single moms before, what, what can you tell us about the effects this has on incentivizing employment? There's strong evidence that the EITC does um, encourage people to work. Um, And in fact, it was originally designed to encourage work. And that's part of the reason why it's had such strong bipartisan support over the decades that it's been in place. Uh, And the way it encourages work is by um, providing a more generous credit as uh, as families earn more income up to a point so that generally the more people work and earn uh, as they work and earn more, they get a larger credit until their incomes reach a, a a point where it starts phasing out because their incomes are high enough to to not need as much support. So um, there's a, a large body of research on the federal EITC showing that it boosts employment, um, especially among single mothers who, again, are the largest group of beneficiaries. Um, and in fact, there's some new research that's come out in the past couple of years that um, shows that when you account for the fact that EITC encourages people who aren't working to start working because uh, they can they get not just the wages that they earn from their job, but they also then qualify for the for the EITC, which increases their income for the year. Um, when you account for that extra effect of people entering the workforce, EITC actually reduces poverty twice as much as previously it had been thought to do. So. Um, it's, yeah, it's got a, a long, there's a large body of evidence showing that it really helps give people a reason to enter their workforce and, and helps make the, the earnings that they get um, sufficient so that they can really can allow them to support their families much better. Now, last year, you released a report that drew a connection, be, direct connection between EITC and universal basic income and looking at specific steps that could be taken in California to expand Cal EITC in that direction. Can you tell us what that expansion looked like and what really motivated your approach here? Sure. So, I mean, part of what motivated us was the fact that most discussion around UBI looks at how this could be implemented at a national level, but it might actually be more realistic politically to implement at the state level. And so we wanted to look at, well, what, what, how could we implement a UBI here in California? 
Um, and so what we ultimately argued is that the Cali ITC could really lay the groundwork for a much bigger, bolder basic income policy. And the way to that conclusion is that we thought that, you know, providing a truly meaningful basic income, you know, one that significantly cuts poverty, um, also ideally helps people above the poverty line who, you know, also struggle to get by in California, if it's provided universally, it would be really expensive. And we're not sure that the state could generate a revenue source large enough um, to do that. So we thought through, okay, so how could we how could we make the cost a little more realistic? And there's basically two ways to do that. You either reduce the benefit or you target it to fewer people. And so we would argue that targeting it to fewer people makes more sense because that way you can provide a more meaningful um, income support to the people who need it the most. Once we go down the road of targeting the benefit, we thought, well, we also need to gradually phase it out. Um, because otherwise it can create some sort of, you know, weird behavioral responses. So, for example, if the if the income benefit is only available to people with $50,000 or less in income, uh, it ends at $50,001, you know, somebody would have a really strong incentive to not take a pay raise if it would push them over that income limit because they'd actually be worse off without the basic income. So once we go down the road of targeting the, the basic income policy and phasing it out gradually as income rises, what we find is that we've essentially recreated the EITC. And so we thought, well, why not build on our existing EITC as a way of moving toward a basic income policy in California? Um, and then there are a number of other advantages to building on our existing EITC. Um, for one thing, the administrative costs would be low because you'd basically be piggybacking on an existing mechanism for distributing cash to people, the tax system. Um, plus all the information you'd need to find out about who's eligible for the benefit is already collected on tax forms. So it would be efficient. Um, and then also when you provide a refundable state tax credit, um, it's not subject to federal income tax, but if you provide a payment outside of the tax system, um, it likely would be. So, for example, the Alaska Permanent Fund, which, as you know, is the closest thing that we have to a basic income policy in the U.S., um, is taxed. It is considered income for federal tax purposes. So it means essentially the state, you know, if if we were to provide income outside of the tax system, essentially the state would be handing some money directly to the feds. It wouldn't be going into the pockets of the families that it's intended to go to. And then on top of that, if we provide uh, a benefit through the tax system and, and the EITC specifically, it wouldn't reduce eligibility or benefits from other public supports like food assistance or health coverage because EITC payments specifically say that they don't count as income in benefit levels or eligibility for those other benefits. And a lot of families who are working and getting the EITC also do need other public supports to make ends meet, particularly here in California where we have a very high cost of living. So we looked at a number of ways that we could make our Cali ATC more like a UBI. And so one thing that we looked at is expanding it to people um, who don't work for pay, but who are engaged in productive activities. So for example, students pursuing higher education, you could provide the credit based on you know, how much time they spend in school, for example. Um, you could provide it to caregivers, people taking care of young kids or elderly adults or people with disabilities who um, are doing legitimate work, but they're just not getting a paycheck for it. And, you know, eventually maybe open up the credit to all people without earnings from work. 
which is, you know, a somewhat radical idea here in the U.S., but there certainly is precedence for this um, because many advanced industrialized nations do provide child benefits that are not tied to work. And then the other thing we looked at is exploring providing workers who qualify for the Cali ITC to opt into receiving it as a monthly payment as opposed to just a lump sum. And the advantage there is that it would allow workers to kind of smooth out their incomes over the course of a year. Um, and it could also serve as sort of a forced savings account. Yeah, so it was interesting to sort of think about um, the concerns we'd have if we were introducing a program like that right now as opposed to something where we'd, you know, maybe in 20 years where we'd have a chance to kind of work out the kinks of whether this income counts toward federal taxes and that kind of thing. So you started to get into this in, in the last answer, but both the federal EITC and the Cali EITC, in addition to including a phase out, include a phase in. So someone who doesn't earn any income, doesn't receive any benefits, but they will gradually receive more money as their annual income increases up to a certain point. Um, this means anyone who doesn't have a job or is engaged in unpaid labor, like you mentioned, doesn't receive any support through the program. So you mentioned addressing this through including other types of labor, such as family caretaking or, or being a student. Uh, another way to do it would just be to eliminate the phase-in so that people with zero income would receive maximum benefits, which would effectively convert it in the EITC into a negative income tax. Uh, which is, you know, the form of basic income we were testing in the 60s and 70s. What do you feel like the pros and cons are of these two approaches? It's relatively easy to imagine support for the idea of, of eliminating the phase-in for people who are doing things like caregiving or going to school, doing kinds of different kinds of uh, productive activities that are not paid employment, but they're productive activities that benefit the community broadly. So, for example, like the pros of of allowing caregivers to to claim the credit regardless of of income. Um, for one thing, it rewards the work that is necessary but typically unpaid, um, and would also do things like help address the lack of affordable childcare um, and of affordable options for caring for elderly relatives or people with disabilities and their families. Um, but it's also important to note that you know not just those families and individuals, but also the community at large really benefits when children are raised in families that are not facing economic insecurity because children who are raised with you know enough income in their families have better long-term health and education outcomes. So over the long term, they become more productive workers and are likely to need less public support as adults. So I think it's a very clear argument, very clear sort of bipartisan argument for why. Um, you know, there's a good state interest, a public interest in in supporting individuals who are doing caregiving work. Um, and similarly with students who are the same way, you know, we know that a lot of low-income students face a lot of struggles to meet their basic needs and really be able to afford to stay in college long enough to graduate, which is a really key problem. And the community, again, not just the students, but the community benefits from having a better educated and more productive future workforce. So I think there are clear pros on both, of course, the individual level and sort of at the state level or community level for eliminating the phase in and allowing those kinds of individuals doing those kinds of activities to to claim a credit without any kind of phase in. Extending it down back to anyone without paid work um, would definitely be a much more radical idea. Again, though, if you eliminated the phase in for anyone who has children in their family or anyone who is caring for dependents, regardless of what age they are or anyone who's raising children or dependents. I think there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, children growing up in poverty face a lot of serious disadvantages over the long term. And so 
helping ensure that they that their families have enough um, resources when they're young can really pay off over the long term, both for those children and also for society at large. Um, and again, many other countries, and in fact, even the United States, we provide a child tax credit and uh, child benefits for tax filers with children that are not specifically linked to how much income you make, um, kind of recognizing the the fact that you know if there are costs associated with raising kids and it's in everyone's best interest to make sure kids' families have the resources they need when the when the kids are growing up. I think a lot of the the cons in terms of of eliminating the phase in, are largely political. I mean, the key argument against it is that it would discourage paid work um, because if you can just claim the credit, whether or not you have any earned income and the amount of credit you get doesn't depend on your um, earnings, then you know you, you might be less inclined to go take a, a low wage job or a part-time job or um, anything that would give you an, an earned income that was less than the amount of credit you could get, less than the amount of basic income you could get. Although, again, in the context of thinking about this as a state policy, I think it's important to note that, you know, the the federal EITC is still very much is structured um, with a phase in. So, you know, there could be opportunities to eliminate the phase in at the state level and there would still be a, an incentive to work for based on the federal credit that people would be eligible for. So, and of course, the other the other major con would be just that it would significantly add to the cost the more you expand the the population of people who are eligible. So that again gets into the, the question of trying to figure out how to prioritize um, how much credit and who gets the credit in order to make it financially feasible. You just touched on the politics around this issue and I'd be interested to delve a bit more into that. Is there currently political movement towards significantly expanding EITC in California? If so, where is that at? If not, what might that process look like? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of support for continuing to build on our state EITC. Um, so first of all, we have a lot of champions in the legislature that are they've been strong proponents of the credit since it was first created. Um, so for example, Senator Tony Atkins played a really critical role in getting the credit established um, when she was Speaker of the Assembly and now she's Senate President Pro Tem. Um, Assembly Budget Chair Phil Ting, who represents uh, parts of San Francisco, has also been a champion of the credit, and he signaled his strong support for a robust expansion of the Kelly ATC this year through the state budget. Uh, and there are many other legislators who've carried bills over the years to strengthen and expand the credit as well. Also in California, there's a large coalition of over 30 organizations that's been advocating for continuing to build on the Cali ATC um, ever since it was created. Um, it's called the Cali ATC Coalition. And they advocated for the expansion of the credit last year, and they're continuing to advocate for further improvements in the credit this year and beyond. Uh, and so specifically this year, the coalition is proposing to make the credit more inclusive because there are a number of low-income workers who um, have the incomes to qualify but who are actually ineligible for the credit. And many immigrant families who work and pay taxes also don't qualify for the credit um, because their primary earner doesn't have a social security number that's valid for work. Um, and so that means many children don't have access to the credit, and that even includes U.S. citizen children. So the coalition also is supporting the proposal that Assemblymember Ting put forward uh, late last year um, that would significantly expand the Cali ATC over the next few years. 
and um, really provide much greater financial security to working families in our state. Um, basically, the proposal is to raise the income limit to qualify for the credit from about $22,000 where it is currently to about $31,000. And what that means is a full-time minimum wage worker would be able to access the credit even as the minimum wage rises to $15 per hour over the next few years. Um, and then his proposal would also increase the size of the credit across the board for everyone who's currently eligible for the credit. So, you know, there are numerous other ways that the credit could be strengthened or expanded, and the coalition has some ideas for other options to pursue in future years, but that's really sort of currently what's moving. And there's certainly people in the legislature who are strongly supportive of the credit and really want to make it a success and make sure that it reaches as many people in the state who are working and struggling to get by as possible. That was Alyssa Anderson and Sarah Kimberlin, both senior policy analysts with the California Budget and Policy Center. So I thought, first and foremost, it's just a good reminder how powerful the EITC is, both federally and, and statewide. And, you know, you can... You, you can have certain objections to who it leaves out and how it phases in. I think we, we might, you know, desire some modifications around that. But just in terms of its effects, it's keeping millions of people out of poverty. Yeah. And not only is it effective and making a huge difference, it is actually an area where movement is happening, that this is a pretty new policy in California, and there are ongoing, well-backed efforts that have very strong shots at success to make significant improvements. And so if we're thinking about what sort of policies can move right now, this is definitely one of them. Yeah, it's, it's nice to hear that we have, you know, people who are pretty powerful in the legislature, especially Tony Atkins, who, like, like they mentioned, just became our, our Senate pro tem, uh, who are big backers of this program and sound open to expanding it. Yeah, I'd be curious to try to understand more what those barriers are, political barriers are, to actually taking this to be a negative income tax. Um, I thought the point about how a state could do that, and because the federal EITC has the phase in as far as incentivizing work to the degree that happens, that that would still exist. But it'd be interesting if we started having more conversations about making that change in, in California and perhaps other states who, who have those state supplements to the federal EITC. Yeah, and it sounds like people are open to the idea of at least eliminating the phase in like for, for parents and you know, other caretakers, you know, people taking care of elderly grandparents perhaps, um, students. And yeah, maybe if you start shaving away some of those exceptions, you can start to get close to it just being a universal program. True. I do think that there's an interesting question about is it more effective to chip away at it that way and that eventually gets you to a full negative income tax or should it be something where in one go you say everyone ought to have this as opposed to starting to really enumerate and, and list out those particular categories that you deem are worthwhile. Yeah, I think it would be cleaner if you could just do it all at once and it would be more kind of the program you would design if you were starting from scratch. Uh, but I also don't really see them as, as mutually exclusive projects. I, I think the closer you can make it so that a true negative income tax is a smaller leap, that I think is, is going to be good progress either way. 
Well, it will be exciting to see how this develops in the months ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or the podcast service of your choice. And please tell your friends. We're always looking to expand our audience and word of mouth is always the best way to do that. See you next week. Thank you.